Nick, what is going on, bro? I appreciate you doing this. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Mike. It's uh, it's good to be talking with you. It's weird to look at you as we podcast because for the past, oh my God, six, seven, eight, nine years, who knows, True Crime Garage, your podcast has been the voice of, uh, I guess, my travels. Anytime I travel, anytime I do anything, I download every one of your episodes, haven't missed one, so it's weird to look at you. Usually you're in my earbuds. <laughs> you know what? That's the response that I get a lot when we do uh, live events or, or now with the book signings. We're going to talk about the podcast later. Let's talk about the book. Your first book, The Delphi Murders, The Quest to Find the Man on the Bridge. First of all, congratulations on your first book because that is an accomplishment in itself, man. Thank you. Thank you. It was uh, a little extra heavy lifting considering that every week I'm trying to research and write the show uh, for True Crime Garage, which is my first passion. Uh, But uh, I kind of stumbled into podcasting because I was working on a book years ago that never, nothing ever happened with it. And I never even finished it. But, uh, after podcasting for seven years, I thought, okay, uh, you probably should get back to this book thing at some point before you blink and it's 10 or 20 <laughs> years later, right? What was the biggest hurdle that you uh, you didn't see coming while doing this book? Well, the arrest of Richard Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had actually finished uh, the book and then he was arrested. And so it was um, the... Uh, Brian Whitney, who I worked with, he's fantastic. He's he's published a bunch of books. And um, a guy named Chip, he was helping us uh, uh, shop it to some of the different publishers out there. And and we signed with Wild Blue, which they're, they're amazing. So mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're known for true crime. So it, it seemed like a really good fit. And um, th- they had said, well, Nick, you got to change the whole book. And I said, no, I don't, I don't think so. I said, it's all written it, as I was experiencing it um, from the time that it started and as the case and investigation progressed. And the book, for those that have read it, they already know this, but the, but the book to me is more of an observation and investigation of the investigation itself rather than the case because – that's the big barrier, right? That's the wall was the, the, the blue law, the blue wall of, we only got to know what information they chose to release to us. So I was, I have enough experience covering these cases and reviewing these cases over the years that I can kind of look and see what they are doing, what they're telling us, what they're not telling us and kind of read between the lines and make some observations and try to fill in some of the blanks as to what they might be seeing or finding in their investigation. I know you did this a few years ago, but did you enjoy the process? Now you finished the book. Was the process something you enjoyed? Did it live up to expectations? Be like, Oh crap, this is a little too much. Um, no, it was, it was fun. Like it, it, at first it seems a little overwhelming, like maybe a lot of work, but it's, it's very much like what I do every week. It's just the, the only difficult part was, doing the show every week and then going, all right, now I got to work on the, the book <laughs> some more. Um, and, but I stuck with it every week and, and a lot of it was fun putting it together. And I love the, I was really proud with the way that the, the layout, right. The, the way that it, that it starts and the way that it finishes and, and just kind of the, the roadmap in between. And I thought that uh, I really enjoy the, the story, which is, which is weird to say because it's such a tragic event, but um, I felt like it, it was something that needed to be documented in long form and in print. Um, it is an important case, and hopefully they're going to keep progressing the case toward uh, a conviction here soon. So I was a little surprised that nobody had had already, you know, documented this case. It's it's a national a national sorry a nationwide case, and. Um, Again, yeah, I thought it was time that somebody documented. And the other thing too was a lot of the stuff that that I was seeing online about the case, I didn't like. And and you know how it goes, Mike. You see something, you read something enough, you start finding it in different places and all of a sudden some some rumor becomes fact. Yep. Right? And people just talk about it like it's like it's a truth and and I so I wanted to to tell the story as it is, keep all the facts in there and 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 leave it at that and and not have these rumors play a part in this investigation or in the storytelling of this real life case. You told the story as an author very differently than a lot of true crime ones. And there were some amazing true crime books. We've talked about it before. 
a lot of times it's fact, fact, facts. You put yourself as the author, as part of the character. Like, I don't know if it was therapeutic for you, but you were, you talked about your emotions, your passion, your anger. It came out in the book. Who did you model it after? Did you want to be different? Because there's not many true crime books that puts the author in there. Well, I, you know, I thought you're exactly right. And I've, I've read a couple of books that have done it and some do it well. And, and I can think of one or two that it was a little more annoying because it felt like a little too much of mm-hmm. the author, <clears throat> but, um, I wanted it to, so, so a really good compliment I used to get. And I, at the time I didn't think it was a great compliment because I'm a young man, but, uh, at my old, my old career, I, I used to lead a bunch of teams and things like that and, and give, uh, training and instructions and whatnot. And, uh, I had been told on multiple occasions from people that I was training and, and instructing and leading that, uh, that I could command a room and teach a room almost like, like some old season guy teaching wood shop or something. And I'm like, I'm like, I, you know, when you're, when you're in your thirties, that's not really what you want to hear. You know, I'm picturing some old guy that, that taught at my high school, but, um, in, in hindsight, I think that's a compliment. And so when when doing the book, I really wanted to fashion it after the way that we kind of do the show. So our show, as you know, is uh, you, you're kind of listening into a conversation. You know, we're not we're not Dateline. You know, we're not 2020. We're we're more casual. And then back in the day when we first started, my quick description of True Crime Garage was it's kind of like uh, Dateline meets Wayne's World. But um, oh, okay. You know, and it may be the captain's Garth. I don't know. But uh, uh, the the thing is, I wanted the book to sound, you know, to read the way that the, the podcast sounds right. And to me, the podcast sounds like you're sitting down with a friend and they're telling you a story. They're telling you about some events that took place. And of course, when you sit there with a friend and have a beer with your buddy and you're talking through some stories or, or even news stuff. Of course, they they mix themselves in there. Of course, they tell you how they're feeling or or what they felt at the time when when they learned of the news. And so, I really wanted the book to read the way the podcast sounds. And I think that's that's the. And you know what? Maybe Mike. Maybe that's the only way I know how to do it. I don't know. You described the book the way very few true crime cases go. You said it made the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's like a chilling book, and it's one of the few things. A lot of times. Not just your show. If I listen to your podcast, I'm like, oh, you got to listen to these guys, True Crime Garage. They talked about blank case. They did JonBenet. They did this. The Delphi murders. You tell people the story, and I would like for you to do it. Just go a couple sentences, starting with Abby and Libby getting dropped off February 13th. Just what it, What were the true uh, Delphi murders? So Abby and Libby, they get dropped off by uh, Libby's older sister, Kelsey, and in an afternoon in February. And it's a warm day. And the... The thing about the case, for those that don't know, that pulled me in that was so intriguing to me was the way that the events played out. So unfortunately, <clears throat> unfortunately, we have these horrible things that happen and these these monsters that, that creep in and out of our neighborhoods and communities and, and, and harm people. And on this day, um, a man walking on the bridge or the image of a man walking on the bridge approached uh, two girls. So. Libby and Abby were walking across what is called the Monin High Bridge. It's an old abandoned railroad bridge. And the, the bridge is, is kind of creepy looking itself. I'm I'm not a big fan of heights. Um, so uh, I often get often often get asked, have you ever walked the bridge? And the best I would do, Mike, is walk about five or six feet out <laughs> and then turn around and come back. But over there in Delphi, Indiana, which is a small town in, in, in uh, western Indiana, it's kind of like a, a rite of passage, right? It's something that a lot of the teenage kids do. They they walk across this abandoned railroad bridge because there is a certain danger to it. You know, there's a certain excitement to it. And from my understanding, Mike, Libby had walked across this bridge uh, on several occasions, and this was going to be the first time that her best friend, Abby, was going to walk across the bridge. So this was a moment that they were going to share together. And when I say best friends, I mean... These two were super tight. You know how you have your your best childhood friend growing up? That's that's who these two were. And that makes it all the more tragic. I mean, these two little girls, for lack of a better term, loved each other. And so Libby's walking across with her best friend and even taking a couple pictures of her to capture the moment, you know, capture the memories. And then this this dude 
uh, starts walking across the bridge and approaches them and, and essentially abducts them and takes them off of the the bridge and off of the trail onto private property and and he he killed them there and then he he fled the scene and and the book was talking about not just me but me you and everybody else looking for bridge guy for five and a half years you know we had this image the picture that was captured of him the video of him walking across the bridge hell we had his voice we could hear him instructing the girls down the hill, guys down the hill. And it was it's a very unique case because, I mean, you sit there five and a half years into it before the arrest and you go, I never would have imagined that we would have a case of this magnitude, of this importance with all of these agencies working it. We got the guy's picture. We got the video. We got his voice. And we're sitting here five and a half years later, scratching our heads. We don't know who he is. You know, they they dubbed the killer bridge guy, and and everybody was looking for him. I think there were forty six states that had billboards uh, with his image and with the victims' pictures on them, looking for information on this guy because it, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility to believe that he killed them and and then left the area entirely. Was that news? Because you're in Ohio, which is pretty close. Was that news day one? They're because they went missing during the day. So during they the day, went, was that was that miss, uh, news on day one? No. So they, they, you're right. They went missing during the day. They were supposed to be picked up around like 3.15, 3.30. And um, Libby's father shows up and he can't find them. And then he starts phoning relatives. And next thing we know, we got the whole uh, German clan and uh, and Patty clan out there. A whole bunch of they, great family. They're out there looking for their daughter, their granddaughter. And um, it wasn't news here because it's just, as you know, Mike, it's two teenage girls yeah. missing. Like, it, I mean, if that if that made news, we, we would never be able to <laughs> shut that off. Two, you know, teenage kids are regularly where they're not supposed to be or maybe not even allowed to be. Uh, that's that's part of being a teenager. And um, so, no, it didn't make any news here. Now, I am about 250 ish miles away from Delphi. Now, what I do know is locally. Uh, Libby's grandfather, Mike Patty, and uh, Abby's mother were on their local news that night because uh, on the 11 o'clock news, it's just Mike Patty and Abby's mother saying, look, these kids are still missing. We've been out here looking, but now it's dark and it's rough terrain and it's dangerous. We, You can imagine the dangers of the bridge. And um, so they had to call off the search. Now, where it, it started to become... It started to fan out from Delphi a little bit, the information, when they started up again at 6 in the morning, the following morning, that they were asking people to volunteer and come and help look for the girls. Well, it became very much regional news around 1 o'clock that afternoon because in the 12 o'clock hour, they had found two bodies. And so it was, I'm probably aware of the case, Um. I would say about 30 hours after the bodies were found, because it just like it says in the book, you, you know, you hear I'm writing about the first time I become aware of the case. And I was actually at work and I would show up early. And one of the things I would do as a little reward, once I got everything set up for the day would be to just check the news, right? Mm -hmm. you, you know, I think it's a pretty common thing. Take five minutes, check the sports news, check, you know, whatever the news is. And I don't remember if that was a pop-up or if I was on something and, and it was one of the side stories. But immediately I was intrigued because of the nature of the crimes. You know, it's something that took place outside, multiple victims. The, immediately I knew like a lot, a lot had had to happen and, and it was that it was a unique case. And so, uh, you know, we review cases all the time on True Crime Garage, but of course it's going to be the 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 ones that stand out that are going to intrigue you the most and i don't want to do uh, break down every part of the story because they have to read your book which is honestly one of the best books i've read this year thank you the reason i think and you would know better the story really blew up is because there's a still photo of him that she took put on snapchat when was the phone found because that really changed it listen two teenage girls getting killed give me national news but the fact that snapchat was used like did she know that this dude was sinister like there's so many questions. So when did they find the phone and release that photo? So the the phone was found at the at the scene, and the the girls were killed where they were found. And 
it wasn't right away that they tell us, you know, they, they find the information that Libby took on her phone. And, you know, I mean, think about how brave and smart all at the same time she has to be uh, to get this information. And and think about here's here's the thing that I think is lost right now that I want to kind of remind everybody about. Think about this for just just a second, Mike, and everybody out there listening. It took over five and a half years to make an arrest of Richard Allen. Now, we don't know if he's guilty or not. Mm-hmm. Kind of shied away from talking about him because they've not released a whole lot of what they have. And in fact, it's a little concerning because it seems like neither the prosecution nor the defense is in mm-hmm. a, any hurry to get to a trial. And you start to wonder, well, how much of a case do they have against this guy? But think about this for one second. Over five and a half years to catch Richard Allen for double murder. And we had his picture in his voice. Had she not taken, I, I sit here and I can say, I would wager a Franklin right now. Had she not been brave enough to, to, to get out her phone and, and film his image. I don't think we ever would have made an arrest in this case. I, I just don't, I, it would be, I have no clue where the case would be. Had she not done that. And then this guy, then whoever did this, the monster that did this bridge guy that did this, can you imagine? She probably may, these guys usually repeat this kind of stuff. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's easier to believe that he would repeat this than it is that he would just stop and, um, or never do this again. And she may have saved some lives who, who knows when he would have intended to do this again, but, oh, now my face and my voice is all over the news. I, I better mm-hmm. lay low, right? I can't be out there. So, I mean, the bravery of the two girls, and I mean, it just makes it all that more heartbreaking. People want to knock the police. Uh, it seems like they did a great job. And it wasn't some, I hate when they tried to make it like local police. Indiana State Police was there. FBI was there. Do you think, and, you know, on the outside looking in, the biggest problem I kind of felt was like they released a picture. They're releasing some stuff. And they're like, hey, give us everything you have, public. We need... Who, who is this guy? Did anyone see him when walking? But they weren't giving it out. And listen, people want – they want info. Do, did you yeah. find that to be kind of the biggest issue? Um, I, I don't – I think it's weird because it's a it's it's a catch-22 for law enforcement. And I know – and you know this better than anybody. They, I could only imagine the arguments behind the scene. Do we release this or don't we release this? Right. Because it's, it's, you, you need to release it because you need the public's help. But then you release it, you open it, you potentially open up the floodgates to a lot of times. Let's say you receive thousands and thousands of tips. There may only be one or two that are actually going to lead you to the person responsible. Now you got to sift through thousands and thousands of tips on top of the investigation that you're already running. And yeah, I, I know the, the, as the case dragged on and without, you know, the longer it went on without an arrest. A lot of people had a, a lot of negative things to say about the people working the case. And look, we, we got to give kudos when, when you get uh, the Delphi police were never going to be able to handle anything yeah. like this. That's why you saw them kind of fade to the back of the investigation almost immediately. And Carroll County Sheriff's Department took it over. They're kind of a small sheriff's department, too. Um Tobe Lesenby, a lot of people criticize him. I, I think he's a, a fine sheriff. I mean, the, the primary job of a sheriff is to lead his department, yeah. not to not to be out there directing traffic or solving crimes. He he does the day-to-day operations of running his department. And he is a very, from everything I've viewed, and uh he's he's a very good and capable leader. Um, and and he's now retired. Um, but, uh, Indiana state police, they step in, Doug Carter becomes the face of the investigation. He's our champion looking for bridge guy. Um, it's, it's difficult because, you know, we, we've reviewed other cases on true crime garage where they release a composite sketch. And now you're dealing with all kinds of people that are calling in and just saying, well, what makes him a good suspect? Well, he looks like the guy. Okay. Well, (laughs) <laughs> you you know composite sketches they they look like everybody i mean come on but uh so it's difficult you're in a situation where you need the public's help but you know you get over over uh zealous people coming forward with information of some guy that looks like bridge guy but he's he's lived in hawaii his entire life 
the sketch was weird because it changed throughout the years. They went from one to the other. There was a no car to a car that gets frustrating. And that makes it seem like, does anyone know what was going on? So that was frustrating as um, a person praying that they would arrest this monster. You know, was was that an issue? Cause you were way more on the inner circle. Was that an issue with people on like listening to your show and writing to you? Like, bro, how did it go from this sketch to this sketch, two different people, no car to a car. Well, I think, you know, you have, this situation and we were reminded constantly when, when they would do press conferences and update us with information, we were reminded of how many agencies were working the case, how many, how, you know, how many uh, uh, women and men from law enforcement were involved in the investigation. And it was at one point it was hundreds, you know, they had, they had detectives from every post uh, for the state police in Indiana working. The case. They had the FBI. They had Carroll County. They had Delphi. They had everybody working the case. And look, sometimes you just have too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, you you want to have that many people working the case. Uh, the other thing too, you know, police strategy. And one part of the strategy, this is straight from FBI profiling 101. They them reminding us how many people are working it that's not them going to john q public and saying look your tax dollars are being well spent look at all these people that we've uh, and resources we are devoting to solving this crime no that's to try to to scare the bad guy we you know it's if i tell a bad guy we got one guy looking for you he might get scared i tell bad guy we got 1200 <laughs> people looking for you and we're using every bit of technology we technology we have every resource we're bringing in federal agents to look for you yeah, now you're you're hoping the guy's shitting himself. I uh, Nick, so this is your obviously first book. You said you you know previously wanted to write one. You started to write this book, and it was an unsolved mystery. And I'm not gonna be like, so what made you choose this book? We know why this topic was chosen. Were there other topics on the forefront? And fanboying out here, it's like when you have a baby or a tattoo. You're gonna get more. Are you gonna do another book? And do you like the unsolved mystery realm of it? Uh, I love the unsolved mystery realm of it. And, and in fact, there was a couple times that the book was turned down from a couple of publishers and the, the, you know, you ask for a reason. Well, why, why would you turn it down? Because I believed in the book and it, and, and I, it's a, I think it's very well written and plays out well. And so the response I got in both of those situations, when it was, when it was turned down was, and, and I think one of the situations was more of a, well, 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 we want to wait uh, and maybe maybe take it on later. But both cases, Mike, they said, well, it's unsolved. And I thought, I, I you know, I'm sitting in my office when I get that news and I turn and I look at the bookcases behind me. They're, you know, filled with books about unsolved cases. <laughs> I thought, well, I must be the dumbest guy in America because I'm fascinated and I read unsolved crime, true crime books regularly uh, turns out I'm the only one that, um, but, uh, so I was a little surprised by that because to me, the unsolved, the, the mystery is the more intriguing thing, you know? Uh, and so I was a little surprised by that. Yes. The, the short answer is I hope to do another book. I have some ideas and it, it will unsolved is, is at the very top of the list. Um, because for me, anyway, doing the research, doing the writing, it's it goes a lot easier when you're intrigued, when you're fascinated by what you're investigating. The day of the arrest, the five and a half year roller coaster, ups and downs. Uh, you were helping out a friend of both of our shows, James Renner. He's been on a few times too yeah. with the Por- Porch Light Project. Before we talk about the text and the arrest, I know you're involved heavy in the Porch Light Project. Talk about that, please, because I think yeah, that's so a beautiful James thing. And I go- we go way back, and uh, he started up a nonprofit called the Porchlight Project, and we're a, vic- a victim advocacy program. We can help victims of uh, of crimes in a multitude of ways. We we really look to help advance cold cases, uh, Ohio cold cases, and work with the families and with the investigating agency to see how it is that we can help. You know, we have a lot of members from the media. We have some members from law enforcement. And sometimes it's it's just a matter of funding or or scientific ways of solving these cases like DNA and genealogy and things like that. And other times it's it's putting media and uh, in keeping the story alive and in the spotlight. And we can do that with uh, our news outlets through Porchlight. 
We can do that with things like True Crime Garage. You know, we're we're lucky to get almost a you know get roughly a million downloads a week uh, throughout our catalog. So uh, James started the Porchlight Project nonprofit. We we're completely funded by donations from people here in Ohio and. And we only do Ohio cases, but we get people out of state that that make donations because they see what we're doing. They hear on the news what we're doing, and we're actually solving cases. And so when he put this thing together, he had asked if I would be a board member. And I was I mean, I was honored and and a chance to actually do some some uh, work beyond what we do on True Crime Garage was was something I wanted to do. And it was a chance to give back. You know, we tell these sad stories week after week, and we try to help the best that we can. And here was a way that we could hone in on one person, one case, one family, and help them. And, you know, we solved a a 30-year-old cold case here in Northeast Ohio, uh, made an arrest, a guy that was not even in the the police file, which we're starting to see that more and more these days, right, Mike? That's wild, yeah. And, and, and well, in, in, in defense of the agencies that are investigating these crimes for so long, that's why they're unsolved. You know, Mm -hmm. typically person A knows person B gets angry at person B and kills them. And it's, it doesn't take long to get from victim to perpetrator in your investigation. Well, when it's a stranger on stranger crime, it's very difficult for detectives, uh, to, to, to find the perpetrator. And so, what I love is the agencies, the law enforcement agencies that have worked with us with Porchlight, they've not given up. They've spent all this time trying to work. Th- they're just trying something new. They're like, we will do what we don't care who solves it. And it's not us solving it. It's mm-hmm. it's working with them. We're just there to assist. And so when you make an arrest like that, it, it just everybody wins. It's a win for the community. It tells it tells the bad guys too. You can't come to our town, kill somebody, and get away with it. We will solve this. We don't care if it takes one day, ten day, ten days, ten years. You know, we will solve this thing. And so, one thing we've been doing a lot lately is, um, and had great success with it. It's it doesn't come fast. You know, it could take six months to to eighteen months often, but. Now we've been in the process recently of identifying uh, murder victim remains, which is very helpful, as you know, to any investigation, because if we can put at least put a name to the victim, well, now we can start to build a social circle around that individual and see who may be responsible because it's likely somebody that they knew. Very rarely in true crimes, do you know where you are when the finality happens? Like, I remember I was down in Virginia visiting my buddy when uh, the West Memphis three were released. Uh, and I remember when Damien, those guys got out, I remember getting chills like, Oh my God. I remember like wanting to come home just to sit by the TV and watch everything about the West Memphis three. When this was the arrest on the same level for me, I started texting everyone. Hey, remember that case I told you about? They arrested the person you were on the inner circle. What went through you when you got that text, Indiana state making big police dot, dot, dot Delphi. Well, it it was very, different because I had had so many, this case is a roller coaster ride emotionally. And look, I'm not, not even somebody that, that knew any of the victims, you know? And, and so I could only imagine people clo- much closer to the case, how they felt over the years. And this was a case that, you know, you, you were hopeful at times, you know, some information would come out and you go, yes, they're getting close. They're going, an arrest is coming. And then other times where you go, Man, there's nothing on this, and you start to you start to feel like this this is never there's never going to be justice for these two girls, and so a lot of highs and a lot of lows and a lot of a lot of rumor uh, coming out that that I had learned you know once once bitten twice shy right uh, fool me once uh, shame <laughs> on you fool me twice shame on me but it, multiple times it, there was news coming out or fake news coming out rumors coming out and it was. I had learned to not get too excited anymore about anything that seemed good that was coming out because a lot, oftentimes it would fade away, fizzle out, or just wasn't true at all. And so when I got that text, that was different. That was from somebody in law enforcement in the state of Indiana, somebody that I know very well and trusted and it's still, it's still um, a very trusted individual. And when I saw that, I thought, there's something here. I knew right away there's something. I didn't 
know exactly what it was going to be. Um, this person's far enough away that, uh, it, you know, it could have been any number of things, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, I, I was about two hours away, two and a half hours away from my house. And I was actually out doing some porch light stuff up okay. in Northwest Ohio. And I had finished up for the day and I got, I get that text and I thought, man, I got to get home. I just wanted to get home as soon as possible. And like you said, with, with West Memphis three, and that's, that's funny that you reference West Memphis three, because I can remember where I was uh, when they made the announcement that they were uh, going to let the, the three guys out in that case. And I'm going to tell you one quick West Memphis three story. So I read the book randomly, become obsessed with it. Uh, and you know what I do for my regular job. So I'm working and I'm in Greenpoint, Brooklyn and I'm driving. This is like five years after they were, um, released and i see damien on the corner by himself carrying a bag of groceries and i'm like oh my god so i tell my uh partner we whip the car around and i jump out because i'm so excited to see him and he froze and his face like he started shaking but i didn't realize because obviously what i was wearing <laughs> he's like Bro. so i'm like uh, he was shaking he's actually one of my closest friends now we talk almost every single day i, I love the man more than anything and i'm like bro and he was shaking i'm like oh my god I, I didn't realize like me the way i was dressed in my little costume freaked him out and uh since then but i'm like dude i remember where i was and it, it blew his mind man like so i always tell that story like i rolled up on him and he, he always says like i scared the shit out of him right <laughs> see i my me finding out that they they let the guys i was kind of aware that that, that something was happening yeah. in that case right mm -hmm. and and but it that case too you know you felt like all right it was it always was ramping up ramping up ramping up and then nothing Nothing. And uh, so we kind of got used to that in that situation. But I remember I was meeting a friend for lunch and I got the news and I thought I would be happy that they were letting the guys out from West Memphis. And mm -hmm. I, instead, I was infuriated because I was like, when, when I find out that it's going to be an Alfred plea, I'm like, yeah, they're never going to solve this case. Like, never. The state, like, I'm sorry, Arkansas, but that just the state is not interested in solving that case. As far as the state's concerned, they've solved it. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up being in, I was pissed, man. I was like, these dudes are locked up. They let them out. And now it's all these years later. And I was just like, yeah. And, and, and so with that case, it always kind of cycles back around, right? You every, about twice a year, you hear some information on West Memphis or people start talking about it again. And I think it's going to be that way, Mike, forever. And I don't think they'll ever truly solve that case because of the way that it was handled. And it's it's just incredibly unfortunate. And uh, so that's one that even when they start talking about it again, yeah. I, I quickly there's enough cases out there, unfortunately, that I can I quickly turn my attention to something else. Hopefully this case is solved with Richard Allen. And I'll never ask you, is he guilty or not? Because I hate when people ask me. We, we, we don't know. We read some, you know, let's if, hope. If, if I were sitting in the courtroom uh, for the entirety of the case and you wanted to ask me that question, I'd exactly. be glad to give you my opinion. But uh, we, like you, you're pointing out, we don't know what the case is. We don't know what the, the evidence is. And, you know, hopefully we could fast forward a year from now and go, wow, they had a mountain of evidence against this guy or the reverse. Wow. They got nothing on this guy. Um, you know, West Memphis three, they, yeah. <laughs> they they convicted those dudes uh, uh from spec pure speculation and, and rumor and, yeah yeah and i mean and then then we've seen other cases uh casey anthony oj yeah. simpson they had mountains of evidence against those two and they walk free do you think in your opinion there's going to be other arrests in this case and by that and i don't want to get into the whole anthony uh shots thing with keegan klein and that animal and legit an animal he's one of the worst humans i can ever think of i want people to read your book and look into that do you think there's gonna be further arrests that's that's a difficult question because i you know i had said on true crime garage for years and i don't i don't want to be one of those guys it's like oh i i presented a theory and that's the hill i'm going to die on right like i the, i'm not gonna i, I don't want to be that guy but on True Crime Garage, I had said for years that I believed that Bridge Guy had help. And I remember people kind of being shocked when I first floated that out there.
But what I had meant by that was that he was receiving help either knowingly from from somebody assisting him or unknowingly. And I thought that the, the hang up with the investigation may be a false alibi. And a false alibi could be simply somebody misremembering something. Yes, I was with person A that entire day. And I can prove that uh, that I was where I was. I can't prove that he was with me the entire day. But, but I'm telling you... Uh, that I was with this person all day long. Now, they they may be saying that for nefarious reasons, or they could be saying it because they just believe it, uh, and they're not attempting to cover anything up. I I was a little... And I had always believed, too, that, that maybe what the perpetrator was attempting to do was to abduct. And, and, you know, we said essentially abduct them, because as soon as you control an individual and move them any place that they don't want to be or hold them, you... You have abducted someone by definition. But what I had always believed was that that the perpetrator wanted to remove the victim and take the victim with him to another location. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these a lot of these motives are driven by uh, sexual fantasy, uh, violence and sex all mixed up in one with these with these monsters. And a lot of times what they fantasize about doing does require a certain amount of privacy. And for that, I, I kind of thought that maybe the perpetrator wanted to remove the victim from the area. Um, maybe not even kill them. I don't, I don't know. I, you know, but uh, if, if Richard Allen is the guy and, and if he parked where they th- seem to think that he parked his vehicle, uh, that seems very inconclusive at the moment, you know, and I talk about that a little bit in the book. Uh, he could have parked over where the, by that, uh, the, the old building there. And if he did, then he, he did not intend to abduct, uh, his victim that day. Um, because it would have, he would have been seen walking down the road with them, uh, by, by passer buyers. I'd always thought that the, that the killer parked in the, uh, the, uh, cemetery, which, which you can easily from, from the crime scene, from where the girls were found, that would be the nearest place to kind of backtrack through the woods, get through the woods and get back to your vehicle. Because you would think if this was being planned out and everything that I reviewed in the case, it it appeared to me that this was premeditated, that whatever he wanted to do that day, he had put a lot of thought into it and prepared himself for those acts. And it, it looked to me like if it, if you wanted to get out of that scene or that situation with a victim or get out of there not being seen because you could be covered in blood or mud or, or any number of things that that would be the best way to conceal yourself, to get out of that area afterward. And so, you know, that, that may be something that we learn during the course of the trial. Where, where did he park? Where, how did he get into uh, that area and how did he exit that area that day? You uh you talk about some of the evidence against him, which is pretty strong. The few pieces, you know, the, the bullet and stuff. If Keegan Allen uh, Klein and his pops not involved with something, I'd I'd be stunned. There's just too many uh things in between. But listen, I've had you on for 40 minutes already talking about the Delphi murders, the quest to find the bridge, uh, the man on the bridge. Your first book, five stars, Goodreads. The reviews have been awesome. A few minutes on the podcast. When did you and you and the captain, because he's been on a few times. When did you know you had a hit? Was there a moment, a show, an interaction where you're like, all right, we got something here legit? So I think I was, uh, we have an amusement park here in Ohio. It's about two hours north of me, uh, Cedar Point. You know, it's kind of kind of well known for the, the roller coasters that they have there. And I was up at Cedar Point, and I think it was the captain that texted me or, or somebody had texted me and said... You know, and th- this is back in the day. We didn't really, we knew people were listening, but we didn't, we weren't tracking it. We didn't, didn't really have a way to track it back then to know how, how many people were listening or where they were from or any of that. You know, now all that stuff is tracked and there's analytics for all that. But I, I get this text and, and, and it has an image with it, you know, a link. And it was uh, your podcast, True Crime Garage is, was mentioned in Rolling Stone magazine and, 
and and for me like growing up that was that was the, the pinnacle of magazines right like you know it's like sports illustrated and rolling stone yeah. magazine those were like two coolest two that I, yeah that's all you care about right uh, all the other magazines could go away as far as i was concerned but uh so when i when you when i heard that and then read the the article it was something like it, it was because um cereal had finished mm-hmm. and uh had announced that they were done and it was I, I think the article was something like nine true crime podcasts to listen to now that cereal's over and and we we were on rolling stones list and that's when i was like okay like if we if we've earned their respect if we've made it onto their list like we're we're on to something here i think were you a fan of uh talk radio and not really podcasts because there weren't too many were you a big talk radio guy well, yeah, that's funny. The captain and I both big talk radio guys and uh well, just radio in general. Uh for me mm-hmm. anyway, the uh but we he and I were both listening to podcasts back when you had to download them on your computer. Yes, yes. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> of course. Uh, but yeah, he was he, he I know that he was a, a coast to coast guy. Mm-hmm. The captain was because he he would do a lot of driving, you know, he plays in bands and stuff and, and has done so for 20 years uh now but uh he he'd drive to two hours away to play a show and then have a two-hour drive in the middle of the night on the way back and he'd listen to coast to coast i was always a big um sports radio guy howard stern um and i what was the old one of my old shows that i love so much was uh rock line i don't know if you remember rock i don't remember rock line it, it was they would feature like one or two bands. It'd be an hour long. Um, and you know, the, but the, it was kind of, I don't want to say Casey Kasem like, but mm-hmm. it was like you, like when you would tune into Matt Penfield on, Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On MTV. Remember how he would give you like, he would give you some history about the band or about the song. And then, the, then they would play it. And Oh man, I used to love rock line. Uh, but yeah, so that was a, a, a good mesh of, of music and talk radio. I don't Opie and Anthony. I don't know if they were out there. I was the biggest Opie and Anthony fan. Yep. Yep. I was so, a Howard Stern guy. So, you know, they, they competed. They did. They <laughs> the did. Competition. Do, do you feel, I guess, uh, pressure? I don't know if that's the right word to continue to bring your A game, which you do to the podcast world. Every day there's different podcasts. And the truth is true crime now is everyone has a true crime podcast. You're one of the OGs. So you're already like a staple. You're already a foundation. Do you ever feel pressure? Like, oh my God, there's new ones coming up, new ones coming up. You know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't. Um, we, we all want to be on top of our game and on the top of whatever we do. Um, and and True Crime Garage has has been there. Um, but we, I don't know. We're I think we're kind of settling into a place that's a little different than than where a lot of other podcasts are. And in part, that's because we've been doing it for so long. And our audience is so hardcore. Like our audience is is the best. They. And they listen to a lot of other shows. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's no question about that. But we we've pride ourselves so much on the that we got we got people that come back week after week, and we love that. I mean, that's that's the biggest compliment you can get. Not that somebody tuned in and listened to your show once or twice, but if they come back to see you and hang out with you every week, that's the biggest compliment you can get. You mentioned in the book that your pops is a detective and the captain's dad's a detective. That's kind of weird that both of your dads are detectives. But <laughs> has, uh, have you ever, what's your dad's thoughts on it? Have you ever, and I know I hear people like, oh, he must talk to his dad all the time about the case. You know, because people don't come to me about cases. But have you, have you ever bounced the off your dad? Or what's his thoughts about you doing this true crime like life? So I, I do on occasion talk to him about some cases. Um, I don't do it all the time because he's retired and, you know, it's, it's kind of like asking the mailman to take a walk on his day off, right? Like he, he did, he did this for, for 30 years of his life. You know, the man wants to have a beer and watch a baseball game. And let's <laughs> talk about something fun rather than something that's going to depress the whole room. You know, uh, he's got, he's got emotions and, and me and my father, both are pretty emotional guys. Uh, so I don't like to, to talk about it too much with him, but w- what's been fun is there are cases where they're a real head scratcher for me and I'll give him, I'll give him like, I'll create a little file for him and I'll go, Hey, uh, do you mind if I just kind of leave this at your house? And, uh, if you want to look at it, look at it. If you don't, don't, 
but in like a week or two, I might ask you a couple questions. And he's, my dad's always been the guy that like, I played soccer, football, basketball, dude. If, if he, if he could be at the game, he was at every game, you know, he's very active, uh, with, with me forever. So grateful for that. And then, but the times that I give him the, those cases, the detective in him really comes out because he he will think of a couple things that did not even occur to me, wow. which which are like a new potential lead for some research uh, for me to do in the case. So I'm always very impressed when when we do talk about it. As far as Delphi goes, that was a case he would bring up to me, um, but he didn't follow the case. Um, but but regularly a couple times a year, you know, we'd be talking about something else and he'd just go, did they catch the bridge guy yet? Wow. And because he too, like the rest of us had a hard time believing that this thing wasn't solved in 72 hours or two weeks or very early on in the investigation. So uh, that would be typically how he would bring it up to me. Did they catch bridge guy yet? As a fan of your writing and your show, I'm stoked it off the record is back because it went away. It came back. Are you happy it came back? What made you guys come back with it? Because that's like that brings your show to a new level. Yeah, yeah, and, and like I said earlier, uh, the the show is is my my favorite. I mean, it's, it, I'm very lucky to 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 have the show because I I love doing the work. I love working with the captain. We just got together yesterday and recorded some stuff. Uh, did put together a couple of episodes and recorded about an hour long interview with a private investigator out of uh, Texas. There's a case that's heating up down there, a case that we covered uh, a couple years ago. And uh, so we got some insider information on that case and that, that stuff will be, we'll be releasing that to the world here in a couple weeks. Ready to finish up with some quick hit questions. Sure. You and I are at a bar here in New York city. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back. The coolest person in my phone. If you want to name drop here, we're at a bar. Like, oh, this is Nick from True Crime Garage. He's an author. Watch this. I'll text who. Who would text uh, you back? That's kind of cool. Well, I, I mean, I'd like to say that it was some like really cool athlete or or uh, or celebrity, but uh, it you know James Renner or the captain would be uh, the most well known people in my phone that uh, that that would text me back. Uh, the uh, I have I have a handful of buddies, Mike, that are bad at texting. So okay. I, I got some buddies that that uh, if if I did text them, I would be I would be happy just to get a, a response <laughs> uh, anytime within thirty six hours of sending the text. Um, but you know, I got a bunch of I don't know how many names I should drop here, but I do have a bunch of true crime podcasters in my phone, and we do talk. Uh, there, you know, Bill Huffman, Bob Ruff, uh, the guys from Generation Y. Um, Jessica Betancourt, uh, Mike Morford. I mean, there's a, the list. You have a solid Rolodex. Yeah. And the cool thing is that all of them, you know, I know they're the cases that they've covered and followed over the years. They know the cases that we've covered and followed throughout the years. Um, and so we all kind of check in once, like if there's some information on something, it, it might hit and, and, and be sent out to a couple people or there's a quick, there's a quick chat. I also have a you know a bunch of true crime authors in my phone. Uh, there's I don't know if you noticed, but uh, this probably didn't make national news. But just yesterday, so a year ago, on True Crime Garage, we did a four part series on the Boardman murders, a case that I call the Boardman murders, and it's from the seventies when uh, three young boys were in separate incidents were uh, were killed. Uh, one in 70, one in 72, and one in 73 in Boardman, Ohio. And um, we covered it last year because the 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 more infamous of the cases was the middle case, the 1972 murder of Brad Bellino. He was found in a dumpster. And he was abducted, missing for a couple days, and then found killed. Well, the reason why that case was sort of infamous in Northeast Ohio was that there was a, there was a picture of the dumpster with the police standing next to it. He's in the dumpster. This is while they're going to go collect the body. This picture was taken back in 72 and then put on the front page of the newspaper uh, in that area. And kids, you know, 
guys and girls older than me never forgot that that image is like burned into their brains and, and, and scares a lot of them uh, for, for many years. Cause they never caught the person responsible. And in fact, they didn't even know if the three cases were connected or not, but they had enough similarities that, that one would suspect. And so last year we covered it because it was, it was the 50, wow. the 50th anniversary of when they found Brad Bellino, when he was killed in 72. And so in February of this year, Boardman police finally solved the murder of Brad Bellino 50 years, 50, 50, more than 50 years later. And, and here's kudos to Boardman PD. Like mm-hmm. they got so much criticism from locally over the years. And meanwhile, the community was unaware that this whole time they were working that case. Wow. They were working, and you know what? Porchlight actually reached out to Boardman when we first started. That was one of the first cases that we attempted to take on. And we only take on a case like some of the criteria for us to take on a case would be permission from the family to work it. Of course. Permission from the investigating agency to work it. Well, Boardman PD said, we don't want to let you guys in. And we're like, well, we'll wait guys, we can do this, this, and this that could help advance your investigation. And they said to us, they said, please don't tell anybody. We are already in the process of doing all that stuff. So I knew quietly that there, that they were still working it. And, but it was an, it was another two or three years before they solved it. So I I started to wonder that they weren't getting anywhere with what they had anyway. So they saw Boardman kudos to them. They solved the Brad Bellino case in February this year, yesterday, the attorney general, the state of Ohio attorney general, uh, Dave Yost, was in Boardman. They did a press conference. They solved the 1975 murder of David Evans, and they announced that the perpetrator of the Bellino case and Evans was the same guy, wow. Joseph, Joseph Norman Hill uh, from Boardman. And so Yost was on uh, the internet, you know, the, the, the newscast for the for the press release, saying we now know that Joseph Norman Hill was a serial killer and we are now looking actively looking for what other victims, unsolved crimes we can connect to this guy. Uh, this guy, I mean, he passed away. He was a very old man. So he lived his entire life undercover uh, the whole time. His entire He got life. away with it. Yeah. He was a child rapist and killer. Um, and I've talked to some people that, that knew him um, that, or, or people that knew him that, people that knew him so and and said he was a nice guy said you know they were all surprised and so um with with true crime garage and with porch light and and it's just it's so fascinating when these cases do finally get solved and we are living in that golden age right now where it's like every time you turn on your computer they just solved another 30 year old 40 year old 50 year old case and so that's that's really good for law enforcement. It's really good for our communities and our families. You know, the 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 more, as you know, the more we can catch these guys, and the more that we can hold them accountable for what they do, uh, the the we should see a, a downturn in some of these types of crimes. And and technology is preventing some of these guys from becoming serial killers. Oh, becoming repeat offenders, of course. We're because we're solving the first case, you know, we're locking them up from the, for their early crimes and, and preventing uh, future crimes. So it's, it's been an interesting ride, man. All right. Three more. Here we go. Quick ones. What's one case everyone continues to ask you guys to cover? Um, for a long time, it was the Piketon case in here in Ohio. Um, the captain actually had some close ties to it. And we, oh. when it was unsolved, we didn't feel very comfortable, Oof. uh, because he knew people in that area real well. Uh, that was one that, that is often asked and I'm kind of blanking on there's, there's an obvious one here, but I can't, I can't think of what it is. Uh, my dream one would, would, has always been to like, if I would, I would never have the time to do this, but I've always wanted to do like a 50 episode deal on like Jack the Ripper or something. Yeah. That, that was a case that's fascinated me for, for a lot of my lifetime. Our buddy Harold Schecht is releasing a book in September called Murderabilia. Uh, not saying if you collect it, what's the either coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? I know you're a little bit of a sports guy or weirdest thing someone has sent you. So, I, yeah, I have received some like things that seem like they're a little uh, 
fandom of certain serial killers like you know somebody will make a shirt or something yeah. or or put the, some kind of artwork that that's really kind of celebrating the serial killer yeah that goes right in the trash can when it gets to gets to me um not anything that i'm into um i do have a good amount of sports memorabilia um I don't know what that says about me. There's sometimes there, I see you got a, a lot of it, but sometimes yeah, every guest who comes on sends me something signed. So I have books, like 50 books, every Jersey, everybody who comes on signs stuff. So, well, I'll have to send you a signed book, obviously. Uh, and the, the, uh, but one that I have a quick story for is, uh, I, and I owe this to the captain. I have a, a, a reds baseball cap. That's never been worn. I purchased it. And then like, 10 minutes later, I saw Barry Larkin. Uh, so Barry Larkin, I said, who was just on my show three weeks ago. He was? Yes, oh, yeah. Amazing. So I have this I have this red Reds baseball cap. I just purchased it. Hadn't even put it on my, my noggin yet. And then I see Barry Larkin. He's on the other side of a fence. And it's, I don't know, seven, eight foot tall fence. And I'm a little kid. Yeah. And uh, there's a crowd of people that are starting to gather around because he's signing stuff. And so I throw my hat over top of the uh, fence. He catches it. He signs it. And he doesn't really know who the cap came from. It's a small crowd of people. So, and my heart sunk. As soon as I saw him, it, like, I'm like, oh no, he's going to throw the hat and just anybody can grab it. He throws, he threw the hat back over the fence. And I'm terrified that I'm, you know, I'm going to not just lose the cap, but I'm going to lose this signature from one of my favorite Reds baseball players. And everyone's arm in the crowd reaches up to grab it. And I see somebody catch it and come down with it. And I'm like, oh, no, I just lost that. And guess who caught the cap? Oh, the captain. No, he no. He goes, he goes, here you go, buddy. I go, man. I mean, he saved my day. He saved my day. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. I still have the hat. That is sick. And so now that you're a sports guy, let's finish up. How about favorite sports teams and one sporting event in history that you wish you could have witnessed live? I would have loved to have been at the uh, Jim Trestle um, perfect season Ohio State uh, championship. So in 2000 and what was that? 2002. Yeah, they won the championship in 2002, but the season is played out through 2001. Mm -hmm. I was at every home game that year. Um, and that year they played, um, I think they finished, yeah, they finished 14 and 0. So they played 13 games before going to the championship and beating Miami Hurricanes. And I was not at, I think it was in Tempe, Arizona, where, where they played the championship. I didn't go to that because I was like 20 years old and had no money, of course. But I went to all, I was a season ticket holder for the Buckeyes that year. So when I was younger, I would work the parking lots for the, uh, the football parking okay. at OSU. And the way that they would pay is they would give you a ticket to the game. And so for 11 years, I, I did that. And I went to there. I had a span, Mike, of like three years where I went to every home game. And then that's after incredible. That, well, yeah. So I got to see like uh, Texas. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been to six uh, Michigan home games. Uh, only one of them did we lose. And so that that was cool. So. OSU against beating Miami in overtime in Tempe, Arizona would be the one that I would love to go to. Uh, favorite sports teams. I'm a weird Cleveland Browns, Cincinnati Reds guy. Okay, okay. Uh, because I'm in Columbus, Ohio. It's right in the middle, right? I I, I can do that if I want. Um, and but uh, the Buckeyes, Buckeyes football and basketball was my first, my first love, if you will. Dude, those are great answers. Listen, I kept you for over an hour. We'll do this again, talk some sports. Hopefully you come to New York either for a book signing, for some drinks. We got to do something. Uh, dude, not that you need this because you have a gazillion listeners, but plug where everyone can follow you, the captain, True Crime Garage, buy your awesome books, all that, bro. So on Twitter, I am TCGNIC. Uh, I'm, I'm Nick without a K. So True Crime Garage, Nick, uh, TCGNIC on Twitter. Uh, please follow me. I'm trying to get my numbers up. Uh, and then true crime garage podcast. You can, you can hear that anywhere. We, we started, we brought back our other show off the record, which is a subscription show that's available on Apple podcast subscription. And the book is available on Amazon. You can just go on Amazon and search the Delphi murders or search Nick Edwards and it will pop right up. It's available in uh, paperback, hardback, 
Kindle and uh, audio book in the great, uh, the great uh, Kevin Pierce did the, uh, the, the audio book. So I was very honored to have him. He's, he's one of the best in, in the business. Dude, Nick, this was beyond the blast. I'm so happy to have you on. Um, dude, text me your address. I'll send you the gift I have for you. And bro, we'll do this again soon, man. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on. See you later, brother. Cheers. Bye-bye.